On, uh, on Friday, Elise, Daniel and I drove to Maroubra Beach. It was hot. We were looking forward to a refreshing swim. As we walked up to the beach from the car park, we noticed two things. Firstly, how big the surf was. And secondly, how few people were swimming. Uh, and then we saw the big sign stuck in the sand, beach closed, dangerous surf. And that explained it for us. Uh, the sign told us an inconvenient truth. It was inconvenient because if we followed its advice, we'd miss out on a swim. And we'd go home hot, disappointed. Uh, but of course, it would be even more inconvenient if we ignored the truth, yeah, which a few people were doing. There always is a few, isn't there? Uh, if we just went swimming and we drowned. Uh, we could uh, stand there in the car park. We could accuse the lifeguards of restricting our freedom. Uh, and how dare they tell us how dangerous it was for us to swim uh, and that it was our right to freedom. Uh, our right to freedom was being infringed. We, we could get up, upset by the sign, couldn't we? The reality was it, it was inconvenient, but it was true. It was a true sign. It, it warned us of danger. It's a little like that with a Christian message. Christian message is an inconvenient truth uh, that says everyone has sinned. Everyone has rejected God, lives by their own way, and that we're all headed for his judgment. It's a big sign stuck in the sand. It's inconvenient because nobody likes to be told they're a sinner. It's just depressing. It's insulting. In fact, a few years ago, um, a few years ago, uh, the anti-scripture group Fairness in Religion in Schools, that's a misnomer if I've ever heard one, found it so inconvenient, they paid for a billboard in Sydney to let parents know just what their children were being taught in scripture. Did your child sign up for this? Uh, went the headline. And then a quote they took from a scripture resource book. God says you are stuck in your sin and need to be rescued from his judgment. I think they thought that was a really bad message and they wanted everyone to know what a bad message it was. The argument was that sort of message was damaging to a child's self-esteem and obviously untrue. And so scripture classes should be stopped because they taught this sort of thing. Because so they thought human beings, well, we're not that bad. And especially little children. Little children are not like this. The sad truth is I think probably 90% of Australians think they're right, that human beings are basically good. And there's a religious version of that opinion as well, and you'll find it preached in churches, but not only in churches, you'll find it preached in temples and synagogues. In fact, it's been around for thousands of years, and it goes something like this. Human beings are not that bad. We're getting better. We're improving. We're all working our way towards God. Surely he won't judge us for that. The intention's there. We don't need a saviour. All we need is some good advice so that we can save ourselves. So don't you go preaching sin and judgement. And we meet that sort of thinking in 1 John. It's thinking that says, I'm basically a good person That'll be enough for God. There's no danger. I'm not under the threat of his judgment. But John says, anyone who thinks that they're good is just lying to themselves. 
In fact, rather than walking in the light, they're actually walking in darkness. You see it there in verse 8? Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, whoever he's thinking about, he's putting a statement into, into the, onto their lips. Uh, but this, this person thought, I'm not that bad. I don't need saving. I don't deserve judgment. And they're talking about it to other people. Do you see that? Whoever claims to be without sin, that's a speaking thing. Whoever is going around telling people that they're without sin is deceiving themselves. And I think that's why John's writing his letter, because there are people who are speaking these sorts of mistruths. He's writing his letter to counteract their talk. Now John's answer in this letter is that if you claim you don't sin, it's rubbish. That's the truth that he brings. It's the inconvenient truth. In lots of ways, it's the upside-down truth. Uh, is that if you want to say you have fellowship with God, if you say you're walking in the light, if you say you're clean and forgiven, the way to, to get that, you've actually got to admit that you're not clean. It, it begins with not admitting you're clean. Uh, the way to be walking in the light is to begin by admitting you're not clean, that you're sinful. Verse 9, he, he counters the lies by saying, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Stuart quoted that in his prayer, I don't know if you noticed. Say you haven't sinned on the one hand and, and you stay there, you, you stay in your sin. Admit your sin on the other hand, you'll be forgiven and purified. In some ways, it's an inconvenient truth that John's presenting because in some ways it's insulting, it's demeaning, it's humbling, it's admitting that you're guilty and helpless and dependent on somebody else. But in another way, for most of us, we'll say it's a wonderful truth because it's a warning. It's an, it's an escape plan that you can be forgiven and purified, that you get to escape God's judgment. It's a wonderful truth. Now, there's all sorts of theories about who John's opponents are. But to me, it looks like a very similar sort of opposition to what Jesus himself faced in John's Gospel from the Jewish leaders who again and again showed the sort of self-righteous pride we see behind John's words here. The Jewish leaders who again and again refused to recognise Jesus and their need for him. And John saw all of that over years. Think, for example, of John chapter 9. There's a blind man who Jesus heals. The Pharisees are looking on and they decide Jesus must be a sinner because he heals on the Sabbath. And for good measure, they condemn the healed man as being a sinner as well because he's on Jesus' side. When Jesus hears about what the Pharisees are saying, he says in verse 39, for judgment I've come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Pharisees arc up. What? what are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. 
They call Jesus a sinner, not them. But he turns it around and says, since they're actually making a pronouncement that they're not actually sinful, their guilt remains. They're the ones who are sinners. In other words, if you only admitted that you were spiritually blind, I I could help you. I, I could open your eyes. I could forgive your sin. But by refusing to admit it, you stay guilty. You stay in the darkness. You stay not walking with God. Now this sounds to me pretty much like what Jesus, uh, what John is saying in this letter here. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. It's a truth he learned from Jesus himself. It seems the opponents are the same the Jews. And it's possible uh, decades later probably when the letter to John was written that the Christian church are listening to this sort of teaching and they're giving up on Jesus and perhaps they're going back to Judaism because the Jews are saying, we're God's people, we're the ones that know God, follow us. And so John's writing his letter to answer the question, who are God's people? Am I one of God's people? How do I know if I'm one of God's people or not? He's answering the question, who's walking in the light and who's walking in the darkness? Who's forgiven and who's sinful? And we'll see over the coming weeks what it means to be someone who walks in the light. False teachers are dealing in lies, but John's message, John's letter is all about truth. It may be an inconvenient truth, but it's truth based on historical events. Specifically, uh, the resurrection and the death of Jesus. Objectively, verifiably true events. The resurrection and the death of Jesus. Firstly, the resurrection, which I think is primarily what's going on in verses 1 to 4. So have a look at verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the truth of Jesus appearing. Uh, John and the other disciples saw him, they heard him, they touched him and then they testified the truth about what they saw. Now, it could be he's speaking about Jesus' whole life in general, but I think he's thinking about the resurrection in particular. Notice the words that reappear, appearing, seeing, touching, testifying. Seeing and touching and testifying, they're not the sort of words that are connected with what the disciples do too much before the resurrection. You might find them occasionally, but they're concentrated all the way through John's account of the resurrection in John chapter 20. Uh, So first up, uh, in John's account of the resurrection, verse 14, Mary, uh, she sees him, uh, she hears him, she turns and she sees him. And it seems like she she hugs him, she touches him, or or, or at least goes to, to, to touch him, because he says in verse 17, don't hold on to me, instead 
go and tell the brothers. Go and testify. Verse 18, that's what she does. She, she testifies. And what does she testify? I've seen the Lord. Uh, next up, the disciples. Uh, they're together in a locked room. Uh, Jesus appears and says, don't be afraid. Uh, they hear him. They see him. They see his hands inside. And verse 20, they're overjoyed when they saw the Lord. John mentions that again in 1 John, uh, so that your joy may be complete, that you can see the Lord. Uh, then there's Thomas. Thomas wasn't there. And uh, he says, unless I see, unless I touch the holes, I won't believe. Well, that's what happens. Jesus, once again, Jesus appears. Thomas hears, sees, touches, believes. My Lord and my God, he says. Uh, chapter 21. Uh, we see once again that Jesus appears. And then in verse 14, uh, we're told this is the third time, uh, verse 4, the, the third time Jesus had appeared. Uh, and then finally down in verse 24, John wraps it all up by saying that he's the one who witnesses and who testifies, who, who speaks that his testimony about what's true. Now all of those words, I, I hope you can see them echoing back in John's letter in these opening few verses. The life appeared there in verse 2. Uh, it's an unusual expression, uh, isn't it? In verse 2 of 1 John, uh, the life appeared. could be talking about Jesus' life on earth, but uh, my guess is that he's thinking about the resurrected life appeared. Uh, a new type of life appeared and we saw it. He appeared inside a locked room. We touched him, and then we testified the truth. Now, if this is true, what, why is John emphasising the resurrection so strongly here in the first part of his letter? Because people were ignoring it. Especially the Jews wanted to ignore it. They wanted to disprove it and disbelieve it, pretend it hadn't happened. We'll see next week how... Uh, Disbelief showed itself in people who denied that Jesus was the Messiah, that he, his resurrection proved he, he was God's Messiah. They were denying that he was God's King. These false teachers think the resurrection changes nothing. The truth is the resurrection changed everything. Life appeared. The Jews think they're God's people without Jesus, they claim that they're in fellowship with God, that they're walking in the light, and yet they're ignoring the living word of God who came from the Father. But that's not John. Instead, John listens and then he declares. He declares the message he heard. In verse 5, he, he gives a summary of what the message is. And it's an interesting summary of the message of the Bible. God is light. In him there's no darkness. Uh, Catherine, that was the basis of the kids' talk, wasn't it? A summary of the whole message of the Bible is that God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. It's perhaps not the way we would describe or, or summarise the Gospel. But if you think about it, it's an uncompromising message, isn't it? It's an inconvenient truth that God is light. In other words, God is pure and holy. God won't permit sin. 
We don't like to hear that. It's inconvenient because of its relevance to us. What does that mean for me that God is light? Well, it's the logical conclusion of verse 5. If we claim we have fellowship with God, who's purity and light, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. You can't say you're in fellowship with a holy God while at the same time living, not living a holy life. The, the two don't go together. It, it's living a lie. I hope that's not you who, who say one thing but whose life says something else. It's the same thing if you say you don't sin. That's verse 8 that we read earlier. Anyone who says that is fooling themselves. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I think that's being slightly nice to the person who says I'm without sin, that they're actually deceiving themselves, that they honestly think that's true. I think there's probably people who say that who know it's not true. Um, a preacher was giving a message about sin and someone said that uh, they hadn't sinned for a certain period of time and um, the, the preacher's reply was, is your wife around? I'd love her to come up here and I might ask her the same question. And uh, I think he was fairly sure that his wife would be able to fill him in on the fact that he wasn't as sinless as he thought. Uh, so anyone who says that they haven't sinned is fooling themselves. But not only that, verse 10 uh, you're actually calling God a liar. Did you notice that in verse 10? If we claim we haven't sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. All the way through the Old Testament, God is telling his people that they're sinful, that they need forgiveness, that they need sacrifice to pay for sin. And yet these people, these false teachers John's writing against, are saying they don't need any of that because they're without sin. That's a lie. Uh, it's making God out to be a liar. And God's word has no place in their lives, which would be uh, something quite bad for the Jews to hear. Uh, so these false teachers are lying, the opposite of which is John's truth, verse 9. It's a very different sort of message. Verse 9 on the other hand, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive and purify. The way through is not to pretend that you haven't sinned. The way through is to recognise your sin. The truth will set you free, said Jesus. The solution to the problem begins with admitting you have a problem. AA has recognised that. Step one, admit that you have a problem. I've borrowed that from, from the Bible. Admit you have a problem. Confess it. God will forgive. God purifies. Purification in a way that the Jewish teachers could never match. How can John be so sure? How can John be so confident when he says God will forgive? Well, firstly, because of God's character. He's faithful and just. He's true in the face of people who lie to themselves and to others. He's reliable, he's consistent, he's faithful and just. But not only is it based on God's character, John's confidence comes because of the historicity of Jesus' death. 
That's back in verse 7. If we walk in the light, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sin. We can be confident of purity from sin because of Jesus' death. Just like the sin offering cleansed the Jewish believer, but it's far better. Jesus' offering is better because it purifies not just from sin committed in this period of time, it purifies from all sin. Once for sin, not just past sin, but for future sin. I wonder if that's a purification and forgiveness that you know, a a guiltlessness, a freedom that you know. He goes on to spell out what that freedom and that cleansing looks like uh, into chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's not just a passive, dumb goat whose blood is poured out as a symbol of punishment. Jesus is an active, powerful, living advocate who presents, who in the present tense, who's who's presenting our legal defence before God, a defence based on his own righteous obedience. He's the righteous one who always acts with truth. You can trust him. He's the one speaking to the Father in the present tense. He's living. He's not just some, an act that happened in the past, but when you sin today and tomorrow, you have a living and active advocate who is speaking for you. And he's not just purifying like soap or disinfectant. He's not just covering up or putting up with sin. He's satisfying the just wrath of a righteous father. That's what's behind that word that we've got translated as atoning sacrifice. Some other translations have propitiation, which doesn't mean much for us these days, I don't think, which is why our versions come up with something a little more understandable. But propitiation means satisfaction of wrath. The extraordinary truth for his Jewish readers was that this satisfaction didn't just happen for Jews who kept the laws. It was a sacrifice that worked for Gentiles as well. That meant God's wrath could be satisfied against the sins for the whole world. I think that's what it means in uh, verse 2 when it talks about uh, Jesus' sacrifice not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world. I think he's thinking about Gentiles, not just Jews. And all it takes to receive that forgiveness, that wrath, satisfaction, is faith, is to trust Jesus' word, to trust the word here of John, uh, to trust the one who is trustworthy and reliable. I hope that's a faith that you have. And the result of it all is a new nation, a new family, Uh, not just Jew on one side and Gentile on the other, but 
Jew and Gentile together, uh, family. And that's been the whole point of the Apostle's teaching, uh, the Apostle John's teaching. Uh, Did you notice that back up in chapter 1, verse 3? The whole point of preaching to these people was that they would have fellowship with one another, that they would come to know Jesus. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, our fellowships with the Father and with his Son, and we write this to make our joy complete. Joy is the end result. Fellowship is the end result. That's the good thing about the truth that John's speaking for us, even an inconvenient truth like this, truth that will set you free, that gives you confidence before God, that gives you joy, that leads to fellowship and connection with people and with God. All of those things are what it means to walk in the light, to see clearly, to walk without stumbling, to be certain, to have assurance, certainty of your forgiveness and your connection to God, certainty that comes from depending on the work of someone else rather than your own faulty work, joy because of fellowship with others who are walking in the light. Uh, Walking in the light with someone else has the idea of a, a truthfulness and an openness in a relationship and a transparent accountability. Walking in the light is joy before God as well because you know you're accepted and welcome, that your past has been dealt with, that your future is sure. Is that your experience? I hope it is and it can be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's some wonderful uh, ideas and images in this passage. There's some wonderful promises. Help us to see them and to trust them that we might have fellowship with you and with one another and that we might have joy. And we pray these things knowing that this is your desire as well. Uh, We pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.